right, so this section we'll be looking at um, chapter 15, verses 5 through 19, is on the importance of instruction, a theme that has been obviously much emphasized in the book of Proverbs. But there's two subsections here, and the two subsections are each seven verses. So verses 5 through 12 is on the consequences of accepting or rejecting instruction. And then the next section, verses 13 through 19, are on the superiority of the overcomer to circumstances. And so the first focuses on the heart and superiority of the inward man to the external world. And then, lastly, there's an emphasis on two kinds of overcomers. And those are the one who is slow to anger and also the upright. So we'll consider those as we arrive at them. So let's look at the first seven verses uh, about the consequences of accepting or rejecting instruction. So, verse 5, A fool despises his father's instruction, but he who receives correction is prudent. Now, a fool hates or despises his father's training or instruction. Now, we, we've dealt with the word masar before. It's the word here. It's, it's emphasized. And so this idea of despising the training, the instruction, the, the being prepared and being built up. The one who receives, the word is, is literally to guard. Um, the, the term there is, is used principally on guarding or keeping. The idea of he who guards, and the word correction is a worse translation than rebuke. Now, the reason I want to point that out is correction we often talk about is about putting on, whereas rebuke is about putting off. So it's always easier to receive advice about, well, you know, here's something that might be helpful versus stop it, you're doing it wrong, right? That, the stop it, you're doing it wrong is, is harder to hear. And so we have a tendency to hate that rebuke more. So the one who guards rebuke is prudent. And we can think about the word prudent there is talking about successful, able to navigate things effectively. So in other words, if you want to get better at things, you need to be careful to guard the input of rebukes. Now, here's how you could do the opposite of guarding the input of rebukes. If you make it hard for people to tell you you're wrong, you are not guarding the input of rebukes. Instead, what you're doing is you are raiding the input of rebukes. The caravans of rebukes will stop the travel to the city of you when they are being constantly attacked by you. If you reduce the cost of caravans entering the city of you, more of them will travel there. Now, there's an interesting figure in the logistics world. As the cost of shipping reduces by 1%, on average, trade increases by 5% historically. Okay? So the amount of trade that occurs dramatically increases as the cost, the frictional cost of transactions go down. A lot more trades all of a sudden make sense. The risk and cost go down. If you reduce how difficult it is to rebuke you by just a little bit, I think you will find the flow through, the rate of rebukes to increase. And if you love wisdom, 
You will guard rebuke. You will make it easy for people to rebuke you. And so this desire to receive instruction involves trying to make it easy for those who are wise to rebuke you. That makes it so that you become more effective. Now, this warning to heed the training of a godly father points to all authorities. And it's an insult to those who reject the instruction of godly fathers. Now, the word for fool here is a will, which you might remember means to be obtuse by the effects of moral perversion. So, if you are finding that in your own corruption you more and more are resistant to correction, that's the display of obtuseness. And so, that call to consider, am I difficult to correct, is an important one to make sure that you are prudent or shrewd or wise. Now, point C, page two. Listening to criticism is extremely important. If you want criticism to come in, you have to encourage criticism. People generally like to criticize, just not to the person they're criticizing. However, if you make it easier for people to criticize you, you will find, again, an increase of the supply of rebuke. Listening to criticism is very important. You have to encourage it to make it happen. You have to listen to it. That doesn't mean you have to agree with it. You have to listen to it. Giving a reasonable hearing. Especially if you're in a position of authority. You have to draw criticism out. You have to be careful to protect people when they give it to you. And be careful not to punish the critic. Not for the criticism itself. You can refute it. You can argue with it. But to be particularly dispassionate particularly dispassionate when dealing with the criticism of self. This is easier to say than to do. And at the same time, it's true. Now, the more isolated you are in life, the harder it is to get criticism from people who actually know you and who care about you. So one of the benefits of church life is the availability of criticism, of rebuke. One of the benefits of family life is the availability of criticism and rebuke. One of the blessings of authority is the availability of criticism and rebuke from those who are wise. And so God wisely has set up institutions for that in terms of the household for parents to be able to criticize and rebuke their children and then in the church for elders to be put into place for that purpose as well in terms of the maintaining of order for discipline in the church. Now, when you're in authority... Again, there's a certain isolation there, and it's difficult to get people to criticize in a way that's helpful. The more successful you are, the more authority you have, the more isolated you become from criticism. And so it becomes important to develop friendships, specifically with the openness of criticism. And the greatest counselor, and the one who has the greatest insight, is going to be your spouse. So if your spouse does not feel like they can talk to you about your failings, you have made it so that you have lost your closest counselor. And the way to fix that is to reduce the cost by reducing the raids against the caravans that bring in the criticism. So, verse 6. 
Uh, oh, one last thing, sorry. So verse 12 is a frame. These two, verse 5 and verse 12 together frame the first subunit. Okay, so look, look at and think about verse 12 as it relates to verse 5. A scoffer does not love one who corrects. Again, it's the same root, so it's rebukes. That is a better translation. A scoffer does not love one who rebukes him, nor will he go to the wise. So let's think about the earlier verse, verse 5. A fool despises his father's instruction, but he who guards rebuke is prudent. On the other side, a scoffer does not love one who rebukes, nor will he go to the wise. So think about those two together. They, they both deal with this matter of rebuke. And so we think about the scoffer hating rebukes, and we think about the idea of the prudent man guarding rebuke. A prudent man guards rebuke receives it, encourages it to come in. Alright, so verse 6. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but in the revenue of the wicked is trouble. The lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of the fool does not do so. So, we have a switch on the type of fool we're talking about now. So, we switch to the other word, Kesslim. And so here we're talking about those who are, who are perverse because of obtuseness. So the other one is obtuse because of perversity. And here we go now again to perverse because of obtuseness. So in either case, being slow to learn is a part of the insult. And being crooked or wicked is a part of the insult. And so this idea of being reminded of, of being crooked and also being slow to learn are always a part of what's being said when talking about the fool, no matter which of the Hebrew words is being used. But that switching is a part of the kind of playfulness of Proverbs. Proverbs is intelligently written. It's written with puns. It's written with a sort of rhetorical playfulness that's designed to draw in and encourage consideration. And so we think about the house of the righteous the, the house of the righteous here, this is, this is a sort of a pun. It's, it's ambiguous. The house of the righteous, in the house of the righteous, there's much treasure. Okay, well, the house of the righteous could be talking about a physical house with physical treasures. It could also be talking about the household, the institution of the household, which regardless of what building it's in, it's the same family. And so in the house of the righteous, there are physical treasures from consuming less than is produced. And in the household... There are spiritual treasures from learning and discipling. And there are customs and skills that can be displayed as treasures. So, you might feel like customs and skills as treasures is a bit of a stretch. This sounds fluffy. Okay, let's think about this for a second. The possession of material treasures comes from the productive output of people at some point in time. The productive output of people comes from skill and wisdom that gives motivation and it results in certain behaviors that turn into habits and create customs that are shared, shared ways of behavior. When, socio when sociologists talk about cultures, okay, remember what's culture? Culture is philosophy externalized, it's religion externalized, it's, it's the ideas 
turned into artifacts, customs, common knowledge points. So when sociologists engage with cultures, they particularly look for customs, language, and technology. Okay, and so the idea of a custom, you go, what are the, what are the customs here? What are the things that are valued? What are the behaviors that if you don't do them, they offend? And if you do them, they offend. Right? So there are things about a culture that can be uh, made clear in terms of the customs and which ones are the most offensive to transgress. The language itself, the vocabulary of the language, what things are their words for? What ideas? We, we, we live in this, this wealth of the English language, which is the largest vocabulary set of any language ever by multiples. Okay, so we don't much feel restrained by English because we have about seven words for everything. And that's because we've taken words from every culture we can imagine, sometimes just for fun. And so we have a French version, a Latin version, a Greek taken version, uh, words that we make up, right? And so these words, they represent ideas. And so we have a very large and developed linguistic set. And so the things that there are words for and the things that there's multiple words for, and that there's nuances for, and does it surprise you that the Eskimos have double-digit words for describing types of precipitation? Would it shock you that they have carefully classified the types of snow? They deal with it a lot. It affects their behavior a lot. It makes sense that they've thought about snow a lot. When they are living in their snow house, waiting for it to stop snowing so they can trek through the snow to kill something that's white that hides in the snow, they think about snow. Expected. So the culture, what I want you to think about in your own household, what are the customs when you come home would your family expect you to greet them each individually? Or would they expect that you know, you've been apart for most of a day and you don't acknowledge each other? You think, think about the difference that greeting each other when you've been parted for some hours versus not has over the course of 30 years. The type of greeting, that is, does it involve some sort of an embrace, a kiss, a slap on the back, more appropriate for sons than wives. So those types of things. What should you do if you want to build a culture with customs that helps to build the home? Customs that are well-established and behaviors that are expected that are prudent are a treasure. And they alter people's behavior and expectations in ways that affect day after day after day. What words are most frequently spoken? What are the expected behaviors in terms of the order of a conversation? If there's an accusation to be brought, is there an expectation of a questioning and seeking to understand, those kinds of things? What are, what are the behaviors when certain types of common things happen? You can, If a sociologist were sitting in your home and trying to map out the customs of your home and the habits of behaviors of the individuals and figuring out where the overlap is, that, what, what would the book look like? 
when you deal with the language, okay, what's talked about? What are the ideas that are most focused upon? What are the things that are explained in the most ways so there are shared, understood words and touch points of ideas? Now, the other thing is skills and technologies. Right? The, what, are the, what are the skills? What are the abilities that exist in your home? What are you, what are you able to do? What are you teaching? What are the tools you have sitting around? Right? So, so you, can, you can fill your house with technologies and we have technological wonders, right? We have, we have phones that can do as much as a thousand servants used to be able to do. The, these are the kinds of tools that we have. And so our homes are space that is designated for uses. How do we structure the space of our home and what tools dominate the space? What are the activities that we expect to do in what space? So you might be interested in being a sociologist, going through your own home, and trying to think about what are the customs? You walk through the front door. What do I do when I come through the front door? What do the other people do? What do I do when I leave? You know, what, what are these things? What, what, you know, how do we pull together family worship? What do we do in terms of meals? What are the expectations about those things? What are the customs for those? Do we have a custom of praying before the meal? Right? Asking yourself, what are the customs? Asking yourself, what are the things that are talked about? Asking yourself, what are the physical treasures that take up space and the skills that are associated with those treasures and the use of time in them? So, in the house of the righteous, there is much treasure. And as you examine those things, you, you begin to see the way in which those things structure themselves around pursuing something. But in the revenue of the wicked is trouble. It's interesting. The word revenue there is, is really most literally harvest. The produce, the yield. So the harvest of the wicked is trouble. Now that language of harvest, I think, makes verse 7 a lot easier to connect in. Verse 7. The lips of the wise disperse, or you might better say scatter, like seed. Knowledge, but the heart of the fool does not do so. And here, you know, earlier on it talked about the idea of look, be careful to listen to the instruction that you get. A, a fool despises his father's instruction, but the prudent one guards the receipt of rebuke. Now, the giving of the rebuke, here's the thing when you're dealing with the difficulty of giving a rebuke, right, as the one giving a rebuke or the one teaching, if you get negative responses, it's really easy to clam up. It's really easy to give up. It's really easy to just go, never mind, that's fine. The cost is too high. I remember Leviticus we read earlier, don't hate your neighbor, rebuke him for his sins. And so, the wise finds ways to engage wisely in the giving of knowledge, the scattering of the seed of the word. But the heart of the fool does not do so. So the fool rejects wisdom and doesn't give it out. The heart of the fool fails to build there. And so you remember the inward world of the heart and the outward world in terms of the rest of creation? Your interactions with other people are the interactions of your inner world 
through the means of this outer world into the inner world of another. Think of the greatness of that. Have you ever stopped and thought about the people that you know and just gone, what do they, what do they think like? What is, what are their concerns? What are the matters on their minds? And to think about the mind of another, right? Being able to consider the perspective of another, trying to understand them is a part of, you know, you can take general principles from the word and understand them, but you can also look for the, the, the evidence from their own mouth and their own actions, what it is they care about. And, and being able to, to map and understand and to seek to engage and bless. And so that ability to understand the mind of another, to see and begin to map the inner world of the other, involves time and communication and effort. And so this engagement, the wise cares about ordering his own inner world, ordering the external world around him, and helping to make it so that that can be a use and a fruitful thing for the ordering of the inner world of others. This sort of continual construction effort, edifying, building, ordering, structuring, tearing down the things that stop that. So, things that look like treasures, even income-producing treasures, in the possession of the wicked, is a curse. The income, the yield, the harvest of the wicked is trouble, disorder, confusion, disaster, ruin. Wise men scatter seeds of knowledge and thus expect a harvest of a different kind since you reap what you sow. Now, the inward man, the heart, lave of the fool, has no intention of spreading true knowledge, and thus the fool scatters ignorance and error and reaps the whirlwind, since the harvest is like unto the thing sown, but of a different magnitude. The inward world of the mind controls the output of the man into the outer world of the physical creation and has impacts upon the inner world of the minds of others. If you think about that, that's a profound thing. It's a significant reality. Your actions, your thoughts, your words have a dramatic impact on three worlds. And that third world, the world of the mind of the other, is actually many worlds. So verse 8, go to page 3. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who follows righteousness. And then, ah yes, there's not just your mind and the world and the mind of other people. It's not just the horizontal. But there's also the lateral relationship with God. And so now we see a greater impact even. The impact on ourselves. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. When the wicked gives to God without faith, in a state of unbelief, right? they're not applying the scripture text and they're not believing as they're doing it. When they give to the Lord, it's an abomination. However, if you have faith, if you are the upright, asking to take from God 
with faith, in faith, is a delight to him. He loves it when you ask him for things and when he gives them to you. He has the cattle on a thousand hill. He doesn't mind if one heifer is given away. He doesn't even notice it, really. He forgot he had it. He had to go down 17 tiers of angelic herd keepers for somebody to actually make the decision of which cow to give you. It did not affect him, but he was delighted that it made your life better. The prayer of the upright is his delight. Now, we have giving and taking contrasted there. The next, give, the next contrast is between the way and the man. Right? God hates the way of the wicked. It's an abomination to him, just like the sacrifice. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But he loves him who follows righteousness. So God hates the way of the wicked, and Psalm 5.5 also teaches us that he hates the wicked. God loves the righteous who follow the way of righteousness. Now, we're forgiven in Christ for our failures. We're counted as having followed the way of righteousness consistently in Christ. And we can, by degrees, more and more, be strengthened to walk in the way that God loves. Verse 10. Harsh discipline, again, the SAR. And the word harsh, the principal way it's translated is like poor. Like, so, not good quality. Uh, the idea here is, is it's rough. It's rough discipline. Okay, so, so rough discipline is for him who forsakes the way. And he who hates correction, or rebuke, again, that's the literal, that's the better word. He who hates rebuke will die. Hell, that's the bad translation. The word is sheol, which is the same as like Hades in Greek. It's, it's the grave. Okay, so it's the general place where the dead are. Okay, so you can think about paradise being there. You could also think about the place of torment there. So you go, which one? Now, the nice thing is it's followed by this word, Abaddon, which removes the ambiguity. Abaddon is only used of hell. It is only used of the place of torment. And so what we have is the grave and hell are before the Lord. So much more the hearts of the sons of men. Now, We've been talking about the hearts of people and different kinds of hearts. And so we talk about this outer world and the inner world. And so the question is, you know, when you die and your soul is separated from your body, your inner world will go to a world. Which world? Paradise? Or Abaddon? And so there is a consequence. And then, of course, is the waiting for the resurrection. And so the use of hell as a motivator is put forward here. And God knows the hearts. He knows the destinations. None of these things are surprising to him. So Sheol's the place of the dead and can refer to the place of torment or paradise, like the Greek word Hades. Abaddon is the place of torment for those waiting for the resurrection. Abaddon equates to hell in this context. Now, this sort of relates back to verse 3, which we looked at last time. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Right? Not Santa Claus, God. Right? And so that text is helping us to consider God sees everything. We're told in one of the Psalms, interestingly, it's very similar to this sort of idea, that even in hell, God is there. Right? So we have the same sort of idea being presented in one of the Psalms and here. 
if you forsake the way, then the process of being off the path, right, the way, the path, if you forsake the way, then the process of being off the path is going to bring a rough type of discipline. If the rebukes of that hard discipline, that rough path, that rough discipline that comes in leaving the way are not heeded, then the one who hates the rebukes of that painful training will die. Right? When you abandon the training, the teaching of fathers, godly fathers, and when you reject the teaching of the scripture and instead abandon the way, that traveling through wilderness is painful. If you have ever hiked on a path and then decided to go off the path in the desert, everything in the desert has thorns. Everything in the desert has thorns. And so you walk off the path and you get caught on things and the pain of getting scratched and having this cutting up, the longer you're off the path, the more scratches you will get. It would be interesting to come up with an algorithm to come up with the amount of time and the rough estimation of scratches you'll end up with. But as they build up, enough of them without returning to the path, without returning to civilization, to the city of God and to good order, there's death. Simply refusing to return to the path out of a hatred for the path leads to death. And so, we need to remember that this is a type of training that even if fathers fail to instruct, fail to rebuke, if preachers fail to preach, there is still the structure of reality. There is still the discipline that comes from falling called gravity. And so when we seek to go off the path, if there's no one to warn, no one to speak, the thorns will speak as they scratch against your skin. And so the curse of God is a callback. The curses of leaving the way are useless work, strife, old age, sickness, and death. And each of these, and the pain of them, and the fear of them, cause us to be called again. And so pain is a message to stop and think. The death is explained further. It talks about right, he who hates correction, he who hates rebuke, will die. What is this death? The grave? Hell? They're in the sight of God. He, he sees these ends. He sees the end. How much more does he know your heart right now? Because the end is based upon what he does in your heart now. He controls both the destiny and the means. Now verse 12, a scoffer does not love one who rebukes him, nor will he go to the wise. The scoffer hates the one that rebukes him. What a fool. We should love those who rebuke us. Remember that the prudent guards the incoming rebuke caravans. The scoffer hates the one that rebukes him. We should love those who rebuke us and guard the rebukes we receive as treasures. Because the scoffer hates rebuke, he will not go to the wise, 
since the wise could have little else to say without rebuking the scoffer. So that's the first seven verses. And again, that collection of verses lays out for us the importance of instruction and it emphasizes the consequences of accepting or rejecting instruction. So the next seven verses are still about the importance of instruction. And they talk about the superiority of the heart, the inward man, over the external, over the, the external world, circumstances. The verse 13, a merry heart makes a cheerful countenance. The funny thing, the, the, <laughs> the word there in Hebrew for countenance is, is faces. Kind of like, what's your countenance? It's, it's the face you're making across time. So if you had like a picture taken, like with a video camera, right? It's 32 frames a second. So what would the collection of those faces communicate across time? Well, that's the countenance that you're delivering, right? This is, this is what you're communicating to people in terms of the, the faces that you give. But also, here's another pun. Oh, that writer of Proverbs, such a punster. The faces of other people. And a merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, or it makes cheerful countenances faces when you're happier your face is happy and when you're happier you tend to make other people happier it's obvious but it's contained in a snappy little sentence there and yet we sometimes seem to forget it a merry heart makes a cheerful countenance but by sorrow of the heart the spirit is broken the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. Better is a dinner of vegetables where love is than a fatted calf with hatred. So the merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart the spirit's broken. So, page 4, point 6, point A. The happiness of the heart affects the outward projection from the inward world. And the sorrow of the heart impacts the inward world. So, having happiness is a virtuous cycle that improves the inward world. Right? When you're, you're happy, motivated, and working on improving your own inward world. And the outward world is also something you work on improving. And the inward world of others around you is influenced. Having sorrow is a vicious cycle. It breaks the inward world, the outward world, and the inward world of those around you. Think about that. Sorrow of the heart breaks the spirit. So the importance of being happy, right? We don't often think about Christianity as having an imperative to happiness, but it does. That's what the Tenth Commandment is. Be happy. Are you doing it yet? How about now? Maybe if you tried harder. Happiness is the effect of getting and possessing what one believes is good. Sorrow is the effect of getting and possessing what you believe is bad. Lasting happiness requires stable possession of what you believe is good. Sorry, that should say good, not God. And stability in belief about what is good. Right. So 
if you have the thing and you continue to believe it's good, you'll continue to be happy. Disillusionment with what you think is good or the loss of that possession are the two sources of unhappiness. Knowledge allows for stability in belief, right? If you know something, then you will continue to believe it. Because what is knowledge? Knowledge is belief that's supported by a valid, a sound argument. Knowledge allows for stability in belief about what is good. Contrary beliefs must be confronted with a deepening knowledge of what's good. So if you, if you have knowledge of what's good and you find yourself to be unhappy, then that discontentment, that lack of joy, is a push to deepen the knowledge of God. We have a callback there to deepen our knowledge of God. Possessing the true good, the knowledge of God, cannot be taken or lost even by death, since you take your knowledge with you even when your body is dead. Possessing the knowledge of God allows for both stability of belief, because if you know God, then it's, it's knowledge, right? It's not just an opinion that's going to change. It's the knowledge of God. So you won't be disillusioned. And you won't lose it. You can't lose it. You need to take it with you. Stability of belief and stability of possession come from that. So possessing the knowledge of God guarantees long-term happiness. It guarantees joy. It's the unhappiness that comes. We must find the inconsistencies in our own faith and root them out. Root them out is an interesting expression. You don't just hack off branches. You find the root and tear it out. If you find a weed and you just cut off its top, its branches, and leave the root, how quickly do you expect the weed to be back? You have to root it out. Verse 14. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. Right? See, you have the good, and so therefore you want to get more of it because you want to be more deeply happy. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. Now you think about mouth and you think about speaking, right? But here's the mouth in terms of eating. What if their mouth controls how they speak and then it feeds their inner world as well and so in both ways the mouth this idea of the image of taking in in terms of eating but also the very words they spread foolishness and they take in foolishness when you have understanding you start to look for more when you do not have understanding you take in garbage and you act like it's food for the soul my favorite illustration of this I think is from Jeremiah with the people who are thirsty and they go to dry cisterns that are cracked and they're empty. And so they scrape at the bottom of it for the dust and put it up on their mouth. Oh, it's satisfying. Right? Imagine, what's the thirstiest you've ever been? And now, imagine you're that thirsty 
and you walk to a dry cistern with dust in it and you scrape the dust up and you lick it. And then call it satisfying. That is what the garbage intake of those who are fools is like. That's the kind of deception that exists as we take in foolishness and call it food. Now, the search for knowledge is hard. Time to spend in gaining knowledge is rare. I mean, let's be real for a second here. How many hours last week did you sit down and studiously go through anything? The search for knowledge increasingly results in putting off feeding on foolishness. Here's why. It's hard to find the time to seek for knowledge. And so what typically happens is you have time for something foolish or you can go seek knowledge. And so you go, you know, I'm going to not do that and I'm going to pop out my Proverbs commentary. Common experience, right? Who's with me? Right, so that right there. Is that a custom? Right? Is there a custom of reading in the house of the righteous? I exhort you all to design your lives to increase the intake of knowledge and to put off the consumption of garbage. Even popular conservative media, let's be real, popular conservative media is garbage. Listen to the Trinity Foundation. Listen to Phil Kaiser. Listen to sermons from Puritan. Read commentaries in the Bible online. There's free ones for John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, Matthew Henry, John Gill. You can discuss these things with each other. You can read together. You can read alone. You find it hard to read. One of the nice things about kids is you can force them to do things. And so you go, I want to read. I'm having a hard time getting myself to read. So uh, guess what? I'm going to read you John Calvin for bedtime reading. That ability to get somebody to listen and to read helps them to go to sleep. When you are able to read with others, it often helps you to get into the the habit of reading. The practice of reading makes reading easier. And you begin to get frustrated with reading out loud because you can't go fast enough. And so you find other time to read by yourself. You feel like you're cheating at first. You go, but I'm reading this by myself and not with the other people. It's fun. So there are things to do, keeping covenant in terms of your morning and evening worship, singing psalms when joyful, praying when you are down, searching for answers. We have particular problems, particular queries, things you don't know. Asking for counsel from the wise, sitting down and organizing your own thoughts to figure out if you already have the knowledge but need to simply pull together. Surrounding yourself with wise friends and putting distance between yourself and fools, calling the Sabbath a delight. These are the practices that help you to seek knowledge. The mouth of a fool feeds on foolishness. Now, feeding on foolishness is going to make it so that the treasuries of your inner world are barren. You will be poor in spirit, not in a good way. Not poor in spirit in the sense of being humble, but poor in spirit in the sense of having no treasures stored up in your heart. 
All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. This is going back up. This is referencing this idea of poverty. is referencing back up the treasures that are in the house of the righteous. And so we have the days of the afflicted. That better translated is poor. <laughs> the word afflicted is like an effort to be like, well, if you're poor, it's rough. Right? So, but this is saying if you have poor days, the days of the poor are evil. But he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. Now, does that mean that happy people necessarily have revenues of cash money? Right? So money buys happiness. Proverbs says so. The point is that experience is interpreted. The inner world interprets the outer world. The poor in heart or spirit does not possess the treasure of wisdom and thus interpret things in a joyless and unstable way. Right? Without the treasure of wisdom, you interpret things in a joyless way. Everything's awful. Right? Think about teenage culture for just a second. Right? When you were a teenager, were you surrounded by other teenagers who were overloaded with joy? And there was just like happiness coming out of all of them. And all of their art and all of their music, they were like, yes, all of this stuff is just joy, joy, joy all the time. Right? Well, when you look at the general reality, teenagers behave in a way that looks like they're jaded. Right? This like, I've experienced the world. I've gone through it all. The age of 16, I have despaired. And so this despair at having gone through everything makes it so that I cannot be enthusiastic about things. And so the absence of enthusiasm is meant to be put forward as a display of great wisdom. And in the absence of enthusiasm, that great wisdom is shown to be far away. Because the wise can find joy knowing that God is in the details. The wise have a merry heart and have a continual feast in the sense that they interpret everything in light of God's sovereignty and His plan. Everything is for their good. The stable heart of joy has wisdom and thus interprets all things in light of the reality of God and His purposes. Thus the intake of the inner world of the heart is a feast of rightly interpreted inputs. The suffering is lighter in light of purpose, and the joys are higher in light of purpose. Wisdom breathes enthusiasm, zeal. Verse 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. And that word trouble is trouble of the mind. It's dismay, quiet, disquietude of mind, confusion, tumult, instability of the mind. The writers of the New King James seem to select the least useful translation if you grab a Hebrew dictionary. So, it's better to have a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble of the mind. Small material possession with great and lasting spiritual wealth is greater than great material wealth with disquietude of mind. That's shocking to you. 
And it expands on that, right? Verse 17, better is a dinner of herbs or vegetables, right? Clear proof that vegetarianism is inferior. Better is a dinner of vegetables where love is than a fattened calf with hatred. And the way this normally gets read is totally out of the context of these things. Everybody goes, if your home is a home with love in it, then your meal is going to be better than a home with lots of wealth and everybody else is not happy. No, the idea here is if you have vegetables and there's love in your soul, that will affect the house. But that, that's the primary meaning. It's an application to the house, but the primary meaning, we're talking about the inner world of the heart and the way that the heart overcomes circumstances. Better is a dinner of vegetables where love is than a fatted calf with hatred. And this is an application of having a little with the fear of the Lord versus great treasure with trouble. And it's not outward trouble, it's trouble of the mind. Love of God or of neighbor, either one. We can talk about either one. Because I'll tell you what, you can't do either without faith. You can't love your neighbor without wisdom. You can't love God without wisdom. The knowledge of God is necessary for either. So where there's love, there's faith. Either implies faith. So your love makes your possessions far more enjoyable. Your hatred makes your possessions an ash heap and a desolation. So this gets us to the conclusion and sort of the the climax here of the two verses about overcomers. A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. The way of the lazy man is like a hedge of thorns, but the way of the upright is a highway. Okay, so a wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. This is about overcoming the inner world of other people by having already overcome your own inner world. Okay, so if you're wise, you can be slow to anger. And the result is that you can allay contention. You can reduce contention. The man who is hateful takes the destruction that's in his inner world and brings it to destroy the outer world in making strife. The man who loves is slow to anger and reduces strife. He takes the construction that's in his inner world and brings order and building into the external world. And he bolsters the ties between the inner worlds of minds. And that's one of the treasures of a household. Strong bridges between minds. Which is most encouraged by communication. And communication breaks down if you can't rebuke each other. And so you have to be really careful to guard the caravans that bring rebuke in above any other caravan. Those communications, when there are complaints against each other, when you have to deal with resolution of conflict in the house, those are the ones to be guarded. Because if they shut down, all the trade shuts down. Verse 19, The way of the lazy man is like a hedge of thorns, but the way of the righteous is a highway. This is about based upon having overcome the inner world, the flesh, you can then overcome the external world. And part of that's because you've been able to build relationships where you have a team so you can work together. 
Now, this relates back to verses 6 and 7. Okay, so think about 19. I'm going to read 19 and 6 and 7. Let's, let's think about those together. Okay, The way of the lazy man is like a hedge of thorns, but the way of the upright is a highway. Verse 6. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but in the harvest of the wicked is trouble. Inwardly. The lips of the wise scatter knowledge like seed. But the heart of the fool does not do so. The heart of the fool doesn't do so. The heart of the fool doesn't do the work of ordering. The heart of the fool doesn't order his own heart, doesn't order the world around him, doesn't order the hearts of other men. The wise disperse scatter knowledge. The lazy man does not order his inner world the external world, or the relationships with other minds, he finds that his way is like a hedge of thorns. He doesn't do the work, and it all gets overgrown. And when it's all overgrown, it's all really, really hard. And you know, everything in the desert, when you leave the path, has thorns on it. And he finds that his way is like a hedge of thorns. It's a wilderness. It's interesting. In Hebrew, the word for wilderness and desert is the same word. Midbar. And so, this idea that the wilderness, a desert, the word desert comes from the word desolation. Right? A desert is a place that's desert, desolate. There's no people there. It's a wilderness. So Phoenix is a desert? It's a lot of people. We've turned that wilderness into a place for people to dwell. But what happens is, if we don't do work the way becomes like a way of hedges. It becomes thorny. It becomes difficult. It's not set up. And so accomplishing goals becomes extremely difficult. But the way of the upright is maintained like a road. If, if a road is maintained, it's a path that's easy to travel on. And so the maintaining of roads, the maintaining of paths, the maintaining of habits of the mind, Augustine uses the language of of, of grooves of thought in terms of what are, you, what are your habits of thought he writes his book on the trinity and he says this book is a practice in establishing grooves of thought habits of thought and so this idea that the lazy man does not do what he ought to do. He allows the thorns to grow. The way of the upright is like a highway. The wise man, the righteous, orders his inner world and the external world and the relations he has with the inner worlds of other minds. God's curse and the structures of reality in second causes, they halt the progress of the journey of the wicked and the intellectually lazy. God's blessing and the structure of reality give progress to the journey of the upright. This is the way God has made things. This is the way God has built things. This is the instruction manual. Our comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would Bless the preaching of your word. 
that you would cause us to care to see our homes filled with treasure that you would help us to be righteous and wise that our customs and language our technology would be glorifying to you that the habits of the individuals that the things we talk about most and Father the skills that we develop would be pointed to your glory that we would grow in happiness in joy as we deepen our knowledge of you Father we ask that you would cause us to have joy of the Holy Ghost so we pray this in Christ's name Amen